Let's pray. Let's get started. Heavenly Father, we just ask for your hand to be upon us today. Just that in all ways and all things we may learn. Let your spirit lead. Let your spirit teach. Let your spirit guide. And we're just thankful for the time to be here in your name. Amen. Now, last week we stopped our study in Galatians and we did a one-week study on the armor of God because that's what the theme of Vacation Bible School was. Now, getting back into Galatians this week, just a real quick review. Two weeks ago we did verses 16 through 21 and we talked about the things that you're not supposed to be doing. If you take a look at verse 16, there's this theme. I say then walk in the Spirit and you should not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And that's what we introduced ourselves to a couple of weeks ago. This concept of having a Christian walk. That's where that word comes from. We use this all the time. How is your walk going? And we joked about that. It's not the Christian sit. It's not the Christian stand. It's the Christian walk. There's supposed to be action in what you do. But the action is supposed to be in verse 16, in the spirit, not in the flesh. Take a look at verse 17. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So you do not do the things that you wish. We went to Romans 7, and we talked about how Paul said, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And it's this ongoing battle between the spiritual side of me, born again and saved in Christ, that I want to be a different man, and this fleshly side of me that wants to go out and do things that I shouldn't. This is an ongoing theme. And so verses 19 through 21 was the list of the stuff we're supposed to stay away from. Well, this continues today, but now in verses 22 and 23, we get the good stuff that we're supposed to be doing. But for us to be doing that, there's some things that need to happen. Verse 24, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Bring up that point, crucifying yourself. This is an ongoing theme of the book of Galatians. It's mentioned three times. Back in chapter 2, verse 20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So I have been crucified with Christ. Here and now in Galatians 5, we have been crucified in the flesh. And then one more in Galatians chapter 6, if you take a look there at verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me. So, note this progression. Our theme here in Galatians is die, deny, and disappear. Dying to who we are, denying ourselves, and disappearing. So it's really all about Jesus. Because it's not about us. So if we're going to die, deny, and disappear, we have to crucify ourselves. And note the progression. I crucify myself with Christ. Now don't think too hard on this because it gets a little weird. You can't crucify yourself by yourself. You can't do it. So if you think it through, you take one nail, take one hammer, and you take care of one wrist. You can't nail anything else. You can't nail your... It takes two people to do. And so I think the first point is very interesting. It has to be crucified with Christ. There's something where you stop and you say, Christ, I am so focused on you. Lord, I am giving my life over to you. I'm dying to who I am, denying who I am, and I'm disappearing in you. And then, once that happens, take our next verse. I'm crucified to the flesh, verse 24. The flesh, me, who I am. See, so often we live for ourselves. This is what makes me feel good. This is what would give me peace and joy. This is what would give me happiness. No, I need to die to that. Because it's not about me. It's about the Lord and my flesh. Trust me, there's enough sin in my flesh to cause enough problems. If you go put me on a deserted island with no outside temptation... I'll still find a way to sin. 
The flesh has that much power. And then, lastly, and over there in verse 14, I'm crucified to the world. I'm crucified to this world system that wants to tempt me and bring me down. So, the goal then, after realizing I'm walking in the Spirit, not the flesh, I'm dying to the flesh, I'm dying, denying, and disappearing. Finally, the goal now is what? Verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit. We produce fruit. But for us to produce fruit... All these other things need to happen. Now, let's talk about this idea of fruit here for a little bit. Can you go with me to John 15? Because it's kind of a strange concept, this idea of fruit. I remember one time trying to teach this to my boys, and, and they did something. And I said, okay, do you think that was a real fruitful thing? They did not follow, because it sounds so literal. No, the Lord is talking about spiritual fruit right here. So if we come up to you and say, how is your walk going? So we have all these little Christian phrases we use. How is your walk going? We know what that means now. That's your walk in Christ. But we're making action, doing progress. Remember, Matthew finishes is it up in Matthew 28 of go, therefore make disciples. Go, action. And now, is there any fruit in your life? Because the way the Lord does this, it's a really fascinating analogy. He refers to you constantly as this plant, as this seed. And the Bible has all these examples of you being watered, you being uh, weeded out, all these different things. Because the goal is this idea of fruit. That you're supposed to be producing fruit for the Lord. This is what you see here. Look at John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. See, first off, you see, you're a branch. You're not on your own. There's this idea that you're connected to Christ. And you're supposed to be going out there and producing fruit. We had a banana tree at our house for about 10 years. And I was told it was a banana tree. I never saw a single banana on it. Now, it's not producing any fruit. So... What's the point of having that? You know, if you go out and plant an orchard in your backyard, the goal is you want fruit off those trees. The Lord is saying, listen, you're a branch in me. The goal is for you to produce fruit. That, that's your goal. Now, the problem is we get this all flipped upside down. I think the goal is to do what I want to do. Check off my list of accomplishments. Do the things that make me happy. Do the things that make me feel good. No, that's a never-ending chase. The goal is to say, I'm connected to Christ, and I'm supposed to do the things that bear fruit for Him. Verse 3, you're already clean, because the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. Now, here's our next word, abide. Some of your translations say remain. It means that. It's idea of dwelling, remaining. One pastor I heard said it like this. Stay as close as you possibly can to Jesus. Just abide in Him, remain in Him. If Jesus is here, you be here. If He's not then you go where he's at. Stay close to him. How do we stay close to him? Church, prayer, worship, ministry, reading the Bible, witnessing, mean, all these things that say, Lord, I want to spend time with you, go deeper in you, and I want to abide in you and remain in you. Because why? Verse 4, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. If you have an amazing apple tree in your backyard and produces the most amazing apples anybody's ever seen, and I come over to you and say, I love your apple tree. I wish I had an apple tree like that. And you go over and say, no problem. And you just cut a branch off and give it to me. Go plant it. It's going to do nothing. And that's what's happening right here. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself. There has to be this connection to the root system and to the rest of the plant. 
You on your own cannot do anything for the Lord. Look how straightforward this is. Verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Nothing. How often do we try to do something? You know, I care so much for my family. I'm going to make them go deeper in the Lord. No, you can't. You can do nothing. You know, I'm going to save this marriage. I'm going to lead this person to Christ. I'm going to change this ministry. I'm going to fix this. You can't do nothing. It is you connected to the root system of Jesus Christ and abiding in him because you can do nothing on your own. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Verse 6, have you ever seen a withered Christian? It's very sad. There's many believers I know that started out so strong. Like when you talk to them, they, oh, I want to tell you what I'm reading in devotions this week. I want to show, you know, I got a chance to witness to this person. Hey, where can I serve? How can I help? Then as time goes on, they just disappear. And then when you run into them, they're a withered version of a deeper walk in Christ. I mean, they know the right things to say, because once you become fluent in being a Christian, you can always say the right things at the right moments. And they also know when to maybe pop themselves up a little bit and make themselves look good. But what happened is their Christian walk has become a Christian crawl, and they're completely spiritually dried up and withered. The problem is, we're okay with that. And Jesus says right here, verse 6, I'm not okay with that. I'm looking for more. I can't remember if it was last Sunday or last Wednesday. Let me just made a simple point. What is Jesus asking of you? The answer is everything. That's why you're called a bondservant, is you give everything over to him. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask for what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you'll be my disciples. What are we here for? We're here to glorify the Lord. We're here to give God the glory. We're here to represent the Lord and glorify Him and just because He is God in what He's done. And verse 8 is telling this, how can I glorify the Lord by going and producing fruit? Take a look here at verse 16, same chapter. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask in the Father and my name He may give you. Okay, Lord, so I am here to glorify you. I am here to produce fruit for you. I am here to stay connected to you, to abide in you, to remain in you. If I choose not to, I will wither. One more thing on this. You don't need to turn there. But you've got to remember, there's a couple different types of fruit. Matthew 7 makes this very clear. In Matthew chapter 7, it says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruit you will know them. Every action I do is either going to take me deeper in my walk with the Lord or drive me further away. Think about what it says in Colossians. Whatever you do, in name or deed, do it all for the glory of the Lord. Whatever you do. So if I'm out there mowing the yard, I'm not just mowing the yard. It's a time for me to pray. It's a time for me to worship. It's a time for me to dwell on the things of God. Whatever action I do, I stop and I say, Lord, I want this to be for you and your glory and whatever it is. Something so mundane. I'm going to go in and grab a gallon of milk. Nope, I'm on a little missions trip back to the back. Whatever it is, Lord, I'm here for you. And so therefore, I want to produce good fruit. Because the truth is, the Bible's telling me I can produce bad fruit. 
And I've seen myself produce bad fruit. I don't want to go down that direction. I don't want to be the weathered branch. I don't want to be cut out and thrown in the fire. I want, Lord, to be pruned in you to be for you and your glory. So with that, the world's longest introduction, what's fruit then? Now Galatians 5, please. Because people can hear this teaching and say, okay, I hear you, produce fruit, I got it, remain in Jesus, got it, stay close to him, got it. Good fruit, got it. What's fruit? Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what God's asking from you. Now, it's really interesting. I'm not an expert on Greek in any way whatsoever. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Some people stop right there and say, if you really study this out, it says the fruit of the Spirit is love. Stop. And then the rest of these, joy, peace, patience, etc., are all offshoots of that first one. Now, I don't know if that is necessarily true. Either way, the context works good. I do know this, that since I've heard that teaching, when you read through the epistles, it's amazing how often when Paul's talking about love, in the same passage or the passage before and after, he's also talking about joy and peace and goodness. It's so intermixed with each other. But the first thing you see here is love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Now, we need to understand what love means. Because we all have different definitions of love. I use this example all the time. I love my wife, I love my dog, and I love chicken McNuggets. Now, hopefully there's different levels of love in there. But that's the way we use. Now, in the Greek, there's three different words for love. And this word for love right here, it's, it's an agape word. And the best way for me to describe it is it's a God-given love. When you look at people, you're looking at them the way the Lord looks at them. So therefore, when you are standing in line at Walmart and there's that person in front of you that is just causing issues, you look at them and say, Jesus died for that person. There's a reason why this person is that angry and upset. I need to pray for this person. When, when something happens at home and the kids are the spouse, you look at them through the eyes of the Lord and say, I love them like Jesus loves them. I may not agree with all their actions, but I love them like the Lord. When you deal with people at church, when you deal with any interaction, you stop and you think, I want to love them in a God-given way. Now note, it's a God-given because this is not possible on my own. Think about how when God described himself in 1 John, he described himself simply as God is love. Jesus said in the disciples, excuse me, in the uh, Gospels, they will know you're my disciples by your love. So if the first fruit of the Spirit is love, what does it look like? Can you go with me to 1 Corinthians 13? If this is the main one, this is how God describes himself, this is what we're supposed to be doing as disciples, if this is the main one, we need to really understand what love is. Because I hear so many phrases... Well, I love them, but, but what? I love them, but I, I just can't, I can't live with them anymore. Then you don't love them. Because the God-given love is different. I love them, but I tell you, if they come into my life, so help me. I don't even know what so help me means, but so help me. Then wait a second. If you love them, they can be, and you can talk to them. You can see them because it's a God-given love. Let's talk about what love really is. Verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men of angels and have not love, I become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so I can remove mountains but not have love, I am nothing. If you do not have the God-given agape love that comes from knowing who Jesus is and Jesus being in you, very simply put in verse 2, you are nothing. Because you're doing it on your own. And this is what I've noticed with human love. 
It goes up and down, in and out. It's all over the place. No, this is a God-given love. Verse 3, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burnt, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. Now this profits me nothing. Verse 3, I can do all this good, but unless it's done in love, it profits me nothing. The love of God. We've shared with you before that we keep little um, uh, gift cards in our vehicle, so if we see somebody standing beside the road that says, we'll work for food or needs food, we'll give them something to McDonald's or something to Burger King. But when we do it to them, we say, we give this to you in the name and love of Jesus. We want to make sure that they know we're doing this in the name of Jesus. This is not just a good work, and we're doing this in love. Because verse 3, I can go out and change the world, but if I don't do it in love, it profits me nothing. There is a lot of good works being done by secular organizations that carries no eternal value in any way whatsoever. You can go do a whole lot. I mean, think of everything coming up here at church. We're going to go to the Henry County Fair. We're going to do the back-to-school giveaway. We're going to do a one-day VBS in Toledo to the Muslims. We're going to do a prison outreach in Lima. Um, we're, We're doing the prayer chain. We're doing all these things. Unless we're doing it in the love of Jesus, it profits nothing. There may be good that comes out of it, But if we're looking for something eternal, ask yourself, very simply put in verse 3, why do you do what you do? Because you want to do it because God so loves you that you want to pass that love on to everybody else. You've got to change the way you think. What does love do? Verse 4, love suffers long and is in kind. Love does not envy, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, it's not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. That's the love. So when you say, I love this person, God is saying, this is your definition. This is a little different than what we're used to in the world. I see this a lot, especially in in counseling. If I'm talking to a young couple that's not married, and they love each other, and they want to take their relationship to another level of intimacy before marriage, I always stop and say, well, wait a second. Verse 4 says love is patient. If you truly love each other and love each other in the Lord as brother and sister in Christ, you'll be patient enough to wait to the bounds of marriage. Because that's love. So when I run into counseling with somebody and I, and I hear a husband say something like, oh, I love her, but... But what? What are you supposed to say after that that could make any difference? You know, I, I love her, but what? But then I, I just, I don't want to be with her. Well, then you don't love her according to the biblical definition of love. Or it's one of these things of, I love them. Okay, if you love them, why don't you pick your socks up off the floor then for them, okay? How about that? Love in action. I've had guys come in and they are struggling. Well, I mean, I, I love my wife, but, you know, I'm just not this or that. And I always ask them this. Okay, hold on, hold on a second here, guys. Okay, imagine someone breaking into your home and they want to cause harm to your wife or children. What would you do? They would do everything in their power to stop them, they say. I said, you would do everything in your power to stop them. You would have no reservations of causing physical harm to someone to protect your wife and children. I have no problems with that whatsoever, they would say. So you love them enough to defend them, yes. Okay, then can you love them enough to pray with them? Can you love them enough to lead them in devotions? Can you love them enough to take them to church? Can you love them enough to be a godly example? You're loving enough to kill for them, but you can't love them enough to spiritually lead them? We've got to rechange your definition of love. 
We throw that word out there way too often. And when you really stop and look at what the biblical definition of love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love carries no record of wrongs. So therefore, love does not bring up 20 years ago. Because love is forgiveness. So when we say we love somebody, let's make sure we understand what that word biblically means according to God. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. What's the next fruit of the Spirit? Joy. Joy is not happiness. There's a difference. Happiness is Christmas morning. Happiness is a day off from work. Happiness is vacation. Happiness is your birthday. It's a temporary feeling of this is fun. Joy is no matter what I'm feeling physically, no matter what I'm going through emotionally, no matter if the bills are paid, no matter if the house is working, no matter if the car is broken down, I have joy because Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. Happiness is temporary based on the external. Joy is, Lord, no matter what I'm going through, I know that you love me and Jesus died for me, so therefore I have joy. That's difficult to do. But joy is so vitally important. If you're a note taker, you can write it down. It's Nehemiah 8.10. Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is my strength. So therefore, if you do not have joy in the Lord, we don't have strength. So when I go talk to somebody who is completely falling apart, and it's like, what's going on? I just feel weak. I feel defeated. I, there's no, no strength. Okay, do you have joy? Well, no, because there's nothing to be joyful about. Right? There's your problem. You're basing your joy on what's going on now rather than your joy in what Jesus Christ did for you and what heaven awaits for you. Think about heaven. There's no pain, no crying, no sorrow, no tears. That's joy. That's what I'm looking forward to. So love, joy. What's the next one? Peace. Peace. If I have the love of the Lord and I understand what Jesus did for me and I have the joy of the Lord that's eternal, why would I not have peace next? What possibly could happen that's bigger than eternity? What what could possibly happen? Nothing could. So I have peace in that. Philippians 4 says it this way. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and petition, present your request to God. And then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. See, there comes a time where you have a peace where it doesn't make sense. The world is completely falling apart around you. Physically, emotionally, everything's falling apart. But you have peace. Why? Because you understand the love of the Lord in your life. You understand the eternal joy. And so therefore you have a peace that surpasses all understanding. But it only comes when you understand love, joy, and peace. See, here's the problem. We treat these fruits of the Spirit like a little buffet. Lord, I'll take some joy right now and I'll take a little bit of patience and some peace. No, they all are so interconnected together. Just keep that in the back of your mind. When you're reading through the epistles, read that, see that, how they're all connected together. Next one, long-suffering. Some of your translations say patience. Some of your translations say forbearance. Long-suffering. Please just look at what that word is saying. Long-suffering. One more time. Long-suffering. So when somebody comes up, And they talk about how difficult life is right now and how difficult work is right now and how difficult everything is right now. So I'll say, so there's a lot of suffering. Yeah, so it's long suffering. Yeah. God's not trying to hide that from us, folks. We treat patience as like this, oh, could you pray that I have patience? Oh, so you're asking me to pray that you have long suffering. That's what that word means. That's why patience is so difficult because the Lord is teaching you The Lord is teaching you to say, 
I can handle suffering for a long time because I understand the love, joy, and peace that God has given me. It all comes together. So when I see somebody that's really annoying me and bothering me and I say phrases like, I don't have a lot of patience for them, you do because you're looking at them through the agape love of the Lord. Another thing about patience, please don't treat patience as a genetic trait. I've had people do this to me. You know, my dad wasn't a patient man. You have not inherited that. So you know what? Your dad wasn't a patient man. You saw that modeled. You saw that. I get it. But you did not inherit that. You can make a choice. So long-suffering. Next one, kindness. Kindness, some, your, some translations, King James says gentleness. Kindness is outside actions. It's your character. You're a nice person. You help people. You don't snap at them. You don't yell at them. You don't scream. You represent the Lord and what you do and what you say and all your interactions. You're kind. We've lost this. For some reason, some of the grumpiest people I know claim to know Jesus. Some of the rudest people I've ever met claim to know Christ. What happened to just simple kindness? That the outside actions are going to be kind. Which then takes us to the next fruit of the Spirit. Goodness. This word, if you look it up, it's internal. This is an internal morality. This is now not my outside actions. This is what I'm also thinking and doing. So my outside actions are somebody does something that hurts me or wrongs me. I have kindness. I don't yell at them, scream at them, hit them. But in my heart, I'm really thinking a lot of awful things. Goodness says, nope, I'm not even going to think that about them. Is this funny how we kind of uh, desensitize Christianity? Well, I would never say that to their face. But I'll say it in my heart and to 50 other people. Goodness says, I will not say it in my heart, and I will not say it to a single other person. Because in my heart, that no one else sees, I still want to be morally right, Lord. I still want to be right in you, because that's what you see, even though no one else does. Next one, faithfulness. Spiritual growth. Your faithfulness in the Lord. You're you're, you're wanting to grow, you're wanting to go deeper, you're in prayer and in the Word and service and ministry, etc., This is important to you. You want to grow. Once again, we talk about this term walk. There's another biblical definition about growing in the Lord. We're not just supposed to get saved and stay right there. We're supposed to get saved and grow deeper in Him. There's supposed to be progress that we look back and say, Lord, I am moving forward in my walk and relationship with you. Next one, gentleness. Some of your translations say meekness. Literally means mild. You're not the guy that snaps, yells, screams, throw things, hit things. That's not you. There's a meekness to you. Some people describe meekness as power under control. Now, the problem with meekness is there's really two definitions of meekness. If you find a good dictionary, it will talk about this. It has a modern definition of meekness, and it has an archaic definition of meekness. The modern definition of meekness is really not a compliment. If someone would come up and say, boy, James is a really meek man. We're really saying he's weak, he's wimpy, etc., The biblical definition of meekness is one of the greatest compliments you can give a guy. Because the biblical definition of meekness is, I have the power to do something to cause harm, and I choose not to. I have the power to respond, and I choose not to. The strongest man is the man that controls his temper, controls his words, controls his actions. Now, the world that we live in today, we think a strong man is big and intimidating, whatever. No, the Bible says that's a bunch of junk. The wise man watches what he says and watches what he does. He is meek. He is mild. Last one, self-control. 
Self-control, some of your translations, temperance. You say no to what you need to say no to, and you say yes to what you need to say yes to. So when somebody comes up and they say something to the fact of, you know, I just can't. Yeah, you can. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can. You can say no to what you need to say no to, and you can say yes to what you need to say yes to. It may be a battle. It may be difficult. It may be a fight. And this is where you have accountability. You have fellowship. You have God's word. You have all these tools that God has given you. But you can say no to it because the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Once again, we're in these examples of people coming up and saying, well, if they do this, I'm not going to be able to help myself. Yes, you are going to be able to help yourself because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you as a born-again Christian, and you're going to say no to that because that action does not glorify the Lord. Put this all together, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, that starts everything. God loves me. I love God. It's a God-given agape love, which then leads me to joy and peace and patience, which then changes how I live. I'm kind. I'm good, faithful. I'm going deeper in my walk with the Lord. There's a mildness and meekness about me. And then there's a self-control. These are the fruits that the Lord is looking for. So we know what not to do. Verses 19 through 21, we got that covered. What are we supposed to do? Verses 22 and 23. Verse 24, and those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh. You have crucified, verses 19 through 21, with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. What are we going to walk in? We're going to walk in verses 22 and 23. Which takes us then to what last thing? Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. That's a strange little verse thrown in there at the end, but what it means is this. Let us not become conceited. First off, let's not become prideful. Because what happens is this, we start seeing the fruits of the Spirit. And we start saying, hey, I get this now. And then you start looking at the fruits of the Spirit you have in your life. And then, alrighty, Lord, I got some of these. And then you do what I call comparative Christianity. You start looking at everybody else. And next thing you know, it's like, you know, I don't see people that have joy like I have joy. I don't see people that have peace like I have peace. I don't see people that have love that I have love. And all of a sudden, this fruit that came from Jesus that's connected to Him, it becomes a source of conceitedness and pride. Then you start provoking one another. Provoking is a really interesting word, only used here. It literally means to poke. You know Christians that like to poke people? I do. Little comments, little, little things. The initial thing is it doesn't sound real bad, but then you walk away saying, hey, I think they just insulted me. Christians like to poke a little bit. Because once again, there becomes this pride of I'm doing better. And then at last, it leads to envying one another. Then it becomes the sin of jealousy. Envying. Oh man, I wish I had joy like she had joy. I wish I had peace like he had peace. And then it gets down this awful path of I wish I had a spouse like they had a spouse. I wish I could teach like them. I wish I could pray like them. And then all of a sudden, instead of keeping your eyes on Christ and keeping your focus on the fruit that you're going to produce with Him, It becomes this whole comparative taking a look at everybody else. And instead of keeping your eyes on Jesus, you're now focused on what everybody else is doing. And people aren't worshiping enough. They're not ministering enough. They're not serving enough. They're not witnessing enough. And then you're frustrated with them. Or it becomes this kick-me mentality of, oh, I don't love Jesus like they love Jesus. No. Nothing good comes out of comparative Christianity. This is why we call it a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You're supposed to be a branch connected to the root of Jesus growing in Him. And we're here to help you, encourage you, and love you. Because that's what it is. Please remember, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing, the Bible says. Nothing. You can't save yourself. You can't save your family. 
You can't change the direction of your life. You can do nothing. If that's the only thing you get out of that today, I'm fine with that. You've got to be connected to the roots of Christ. You have to abide in Him. Worship team, if you come forward here for the final prayer. What I want you to do is this, is really pray over verses 22 and 23. This is the goal, this is the focus. When I do premarital counseling with couples, I start them in Genesis 2, and we talk about Adam and Eve and the importance of Adam needing a helpmate and God creating Eve, and I believe that God has brought an Eve into every Adam here for us, if the Lord has called you to marriage. And then we talk about what sin has done, how sin has destroyed things. So what happens is this, and I see this a lot in marriage. People look at marriage as, it's, I want to make my spouse happy. Uh, I want my spouse to bring me happiness. I'm not happy with my whatever. No. The purpose of marriage is God has said that you two together, as a brother and sister in the Lord, can do more to further the kingdom of God and see souls get saved than what you could have done apart. So therefore, the purpose of marriage is not to make your spouse happy or you to be happy. The purpose of marriage is to say, I'm going to glorify the Lord in what I do and say. So one of the things I do in premarital counseling is I sit down with the couple and I say, look at these fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. I said, do you see them in your bride-to-be? Do you see them in your groom-to-be? Do you see them together as a couple? Because if God has brought us together to produce fruit, are we doing it? Or are we only looking out for ourselves? Let's pray this into our lives. Lord, as we just come to you now, we pray that we would produce fruit for you. It would be for you and your glory, and all for you and nothing else. Lord, help us to let go of the flesh in verses 19 through 21 and focus on the fruit of the Spirit in 22 and 23. We don't want to talk about it. We want to live it. And we lift this up in your name. Amen.